0: You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Katherine Gorman.
1: And I'm Nia Lawrence.
0: And we are back with the beginning of our new season. We have been on hiatus for a while, and we've got a lot of exciting programming coming up for you. Today's episode is one that I am particularly excited about. Devin Guillory is our guest today, and he's a Ph.D. student at UC Berkeley, where his work focuses on learning with less labels. When we sat down with Devin, the first question we asked him is the first question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are?
2: I had an interest in robotics before I really knew what robotics were. I just thought they were cool, stuff like that. I came into undergrad and decided to study in electrical engineering in order to get more hands-on experience with robotics and things like that. After I took my first classes focusing there, I fell in love with the problem of computer vision, right? It seemed like super hard and at the time intractable and like, okay, like, let's go for it. If I I want any robots to work in the world, they have to be able to understand what they're perceiving. And so that's what sparked my academic interest in this space. So I eventually ended up at Berkeley and I view myself as like a PhD, like regrettably a PhD. I didn't want to go to school for five, six years to do a PhD, but I really loved the topic. Um, that were involved. So first I was like, let me dip my hands in, you know, do a master's, try to get exposed to some research. I ended up going off into industry, doing more like applied research, working in spaces of vision, language, information retrieval and stuff like that. After a wild ride in industry, I started at a four person startup, which, you know, eventually wound up into like a 1500 person company, like got acquired and went to like a much bigger company and much different set of challenges. But after all of that, I really fell in love with research and decided I wanted to get a lot better at it. So that's what pushed me to apply and come back to school. And that gets me to where I am at Berkeley, where I'm working in the intersection of computer vision and machine learning. I'm really interested in problems of learning with less labeled examples and dealing with different forms of distributional shift. The motivation is like, it, you know, doing it in industry, whenever anything would change, you don't know how your models will behave and you could either not care about that or you could get really annoyed. And so I got really annoyed and I want to try to work on ways to fix it. You touched
1: a little bit on, on some of the influence that your industry backgrounds had, on your research. And and I was curious if you could expand a little bit more how do you think it would have been different had you gone straight to that sort of five six year
2: slog at a PhD without that research experience? I may have ended up working in similar problems, but I think the motivation would have been radically different. I don't I don't feel like I'm I'm motivated by I think that it's like cool or new. I just think like we don't have sufficient things to solve it, and so I really want to ground it there. The other thing is I was working on completely different stuff if I'd have went straight through it. My, you know, projects were on self-driving cars, way more tied to robotics. My time in industry, it allowed me to bounce around different ML subfields. So I, you know, did a lot of work in natural language processing, did a lot of work in computer vision, uh, did a lot of work in computational advertising, learning to rank, different search things. And so I feel like I'm able to pull in ideas and approaches from a lot of these different sub areas and like oh hey it's, it's curious that nothing like this has worked in this vision domain or something you know how can we incorporate that this is a good solution how can we incorporate it into this other field
0: it's fascinating that you mentioned that that your time in industry gave you this this window into a problem that was hard and not particularly because it was like cool or new or the latest place where we like moving the needle a lot. Because I feel like learning with less is a is one of the kind of the new hotnesses that we we hear a lot about you know like oh my data set is even smaller than your data set right like and it's I'm still getting all of these great results so tell tell me a little bit about that and how it's been to work in this area of questions when it's attracting a lot it's starting to attract a lot of attention from people who are maybe interested in it because it's not, on its face hard or intractable, but because it is like the next place where things are moving the needle. Is that changing the questions that you're asking or is that changing how they get asked?
2: That is a good question. And I'm trying to navigate it without like stepping on any toes. I mean, I think one of the the interesting parts about it is right, like because a lot of people are interested, there's like a lot of funding and a lot of potential collaborators, which helps, right? You know, we live in a, a big data, big compute world. All of that is important. I do think the other thing is like just because there's so many people working on it, there's a lot of movement. And I think it makes it harder to separate like quality, right? Like, I have a football analogy
1: associated with that, but it's a soccer analogy. I wrote this old blog post about it. Yeah. That I sort of said, you know, there's this time when uh, your American variant of football looked very similar to rugby and soccer. And it was just like a bunch of people running around chasing a ball. And, and you were allowed to pick it up. And in some sports, the ball was round. And in some sports, it was more carryable. And I think that that proto version of of football that once existed is a little bit how it gets when so many people are like, there's a ball. And that's like the cool idea. And everyone's trying to scrimmage around it, right? If you watch those games, I think they would be awful to watch. Like It's like go back to fo- American football without the forward pass. Right. So it's just a pile of people jumping on top of each other in soccer. It's like when kids play soccer, even today, they run around the pitch chasing the ball and like some kids can manage it, but it's like, you know, the, the, the beautiful game is when it's spaced out when there's a receiver in the open, whether that's soccer or American football. And that's kind of the game you're trying to play, but everyone's, the ball's not popping
2: out. Like sometimes I feel it's like that. Yeah. (laughs) I I get that analogy. I I think it's it's apt, right? Like and even in that the crazy kind of crowdedness there'll be some beautiful plays, right? And there's also like a lot of noise and random mess and it's like it becomes really hard to, you know, separate them, identify the talent and stuff like that. So it's it's cool in that there's a ton of ideas. You can also drive yourself a little crazy trying to like follow all of all of the movement that's happening. I think I've kind of taken the viewpoint of like slowing down, like I'm not trying to watch everything that's happening in the space because I think I just won't get anything done. That's so critical. So my analogy ends with like,
1: you you kind of have to stand in the space and and hope that someone's going to notice you and pass you the ball, you know, and and then I'll look good. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: So to pick up on that, if you can't pay attention to everything that's going on in the space, tell me about what you are paying attention to right now. What is the thing that's really exciting you in this moment? Yeah,
2: great question. Ooh, Uh, and I have to pick one, right? Or a couple. Or
0: top five, or top 15, you know, whatever.
1: (laughs) What's your mechanism for how you decide on those things? I think that's almost like more useful, right? So what those things are, and, and why do you decide
2: those things? Yeah, Okay. That's a really good question. I'll try to answer both of them, right? Like, I'm excited by a lot of the stuff going on in self-supervised learning right now. There's a lot of movement and it's like, it's continuous, it's building on each other. I I guess that would probably be what i say. Like, when things start to gather momentum, I think that that's something that is really exciting to me. So one of the other areas I work in is domain adaptation. It's related to this whole problem thing. One of my issues with it is it seems like what is the best approach? It's constantly shifting radically, right? It's not, it's not cohesively building on each other. And so it, it becomes much harder to follow, right? Because you never know where the, the next really big state of the art type thing will come from or how long it'll last and in what situations will it hold and stuff like that. Whereas you know, what I'm, I see in self-supervised learning is I see a lot of, building on like strong ideas and it's kind of continuously getting better. And it's all related to the like learning with less labels. If you have a really good representation, you know, you can learn quickly uh to new problem settings and stuff like that. My way of talking about it, I am really excited by like how much we're leveraging data augmentation. Data augmentations have always been a big part of deep learning and vision or and stuff like that. But I think we're really getting into a space where like extracting as much information as possible from these various data augmentations and it's working in so many different places it's working in self-supervised learning it's working in domain adaptation it's working in calibration methods it's working in so many other different so many different areas and it has the same kind of underlying fundamentals which i'm super excited about why do i get excited about something i don't know (laughs) i'm trying to just trust my gut i see something and if it's something that like, oh, this makes total sense, like I get that this works and I see where the next couple steps of this will go, that's something that I get excited in or something like completely shocks me, right? Like I would never have expected this to work. It works. I don't get why. And that indicates like some lack of understanding of the problem or of what the solution is actually doing. And so, you know, basically like curiosity, I want to dig a lot deeper to understand why and how all these things are working. So
1: to summary, I I sort of feel like that the two one was one feels a bit driven from your industry experience in terms of you knew about the challenges of data, the self-supervised learning. But then the other one is like I I I like this phrase I think it's from Feynman, the pleasure of finding stuff out. But it would be more like the, the 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 pleasure of finding out new stuff is 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 somehow like, oh well well that I'm gonna learn if I understand that, I'm gonna learn something because I don't understand that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that's so.
0: It, and the the idea that like it's either it's either prompting a direction to go in or it's so open that there that there is no direction to go in, right? Like you don't you either don't understand how it got there or like it presents you the next four or five questions. But whatever it is, like the next step is the thing that's exciting and that it's like presented to you. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. So, tell me a little bit about what you're working on right now what's um what are you like digging into at the moment?
2: What am I digging into at the moment? So yeah, at this very moment, I'm digging into hoping to evaluate models over different forms of distribution shift, so unseen distribution shift, given a related data set with no labels, how well can I tell how my model will perform there? It's similar to like counterfactual evaluation or there's things in other fields which attempt to do this very closely tied to calibration and other things. But yeah, my that's, that's kind of one of my big like industry grievances, right? Like, if I move into a new space, I have no well, no no sense of how well my system will do, right? And that you know that informs how I could operate. I'll go in like into too much detail. Like one of the roles we were you know trying to sell our services to other companies. Right. And so, like, we'd ingest their data. It would be related to previous companies we've seen, but it's slightly different. Right. And we're trying to produce a demo, produce versions. And, you know, we need to know if what we show them will work. Is this sufficient? At the time, it was a very manual intensive process, right? Like, okay, go through, figure out what breaks, add new data, add new annotations, and cycle through. You know, it wasn't sustainable. The same type of thing happens, you know, any setting in which a model is deployed right, the distributions change. And detecting that shift is really hard. And figuring out how to operate within that shift is also really hard. At the moment, I'm really interested in quantifying, quantifying the degradation as a result of that shift, and then looking through what methods allow us to continue to improve there.
1: I really like the, um you mentioned counterfactual stuff, I'm really interested in what people are going to come up with in the sort of trying to unpick the, the sort of causal mechanisms, because that feels like that should help. I mean, turn extrapolation into interpolation, which is I always feel is what you're, you're trying to do here. Like, and and I, it feels like we want to do that with introducing as few assumptions as possible. One thing, although I do a lot of probability, I think one frustration with probability is it's almost like we, we have to specify everything about the world. Right, so if i have going to have a probabilistic model for how the domain shift is going to happen, now I have to specify it fully, and it's like, yeah, but I don't want to do that because it might not happen like that, you know. So don't make me do that. I mean. I love, um, you know, I've left Amazon now, so I no longer paid to give you Jeff Bezos quotes. But but he he said this thing that I really quite like, which is, I don't know what the world's going to look like in 10 years time. I mean, it's very commercial. I apologize. It's very commercial. And I'm going to run a big tech company. But I do know that people don't want to pay more for uh, things than they're paying today. I do know that they won't want them to arrive slower than they're arriving today. And I do know that they don't want less selection. And it's sort of, why do I think that's very deep? Because he's saying not what's going to happen. He's saying what's not going to happen. And this sort of feels like it relates to some of the counterfactual stuff, Devin. It feels like that might be a route for excluding possibilities. Like, it feels like when we're doing probabilistic modeling, we're saying we're, we're saying exactly how things are going to specify. And I just don't quite understand to, to how to capture what he's saying. Like in, in our current frameworks for machine learning models, but I just have this sort of sense that maybe... Asuchi uh, Sari has also been looking at some of this stuff with causal things on graphs to try and deal with domain adaptation. I, I don't know what you think about that, Devin, if, if that makes sense. Because I feel like I'm an outsider. It's just an
2: intuition. Yeah, I mean, I do have a lot of thoughts on causal inference on domain adaptation. And I think like we're, we're working at better framing it, right? Extremely high dimensions of vision and the, the domains in which we do domain adaptation and trying to get causal graphs to like actually work well there is like you know that's the that's the problem you know we may be able to get it to work well in a toy example but once we throw you know a million dimensions it yeah yeah
1: the nice toy example is well these are the three things that count okay well what about if it's a driverless car (laughs) <laughs> which three things now jeff <laughs> i don't know where this question gonna go but i do know take a, take a hit that one jeff
2: but i mean I, I do think there there's something there right and one of the things which i do find really interesting is i think sometimes practitioners or you know people in ml like answer some of these questions without answering them fully right so like Most of domain adaptation work doesn't attempt to measure everything and all of it. It's just like, I want a model that will work better on my new data set than a model that's not adapted, right? And it says nothing about like what the exact cause of the shift was, what guarantees you have on this new data set and things like that. But, you know, you want it to work better. And I think that'll be the case kind of regardless. So I think in that sense, it kind of aligns with what you're saying from, you know, you don't know the future, but you can know what you don't want. I, d- I also do think there there's an interest in being more confident, being more confident in, in those new situations. And that might require a little more modeling of the world. And I don't I don't think we're there yet.
1: What, what do you think, something you said there hinted at a question that made me very curious to ask you, um what your thoughts are, because you were sort of starting to hint a little bit the trade off between theory and practice. Well, well, this kind of thing does work. Where does the theory come on? I guess for people coming into the field at different eras, you just get a different sense of the balance between the two. So what's been your perception and your interest in that? You know, I know it's something like Ben Reck talks about a lot and all these things. Where are you with that and uh, the sort of the balance in your work?
2: My little blurb is like, I'm interested in the areas where theory and practice diverge. And so I get, you know, really excited when there's like, you know, either things that are happening really well in practice, which we don't yet have theory to understand and conceptualize or the other way, right? Like where we have things which like in theory should work, but, you know, we can't quite get them to work, you know, in practice in large scale settings. And I will like bang my head at that little divergence for a long time, probably longer than I should. But There's a sense of it, the, I can't believe it's not better. <laughs> yeah. Workshop. Did,
1: you, did you see that one yet? I have not. I have not. <laughs> it's a, I, th- I, you know, I think the gist of it was exactly sort of what you just said, you know, this should work, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it doesn't. And and that's annoying. And let's talk about it. <laughs> but, but I really like that because It fits actually with something that I always think is when my intuition's out, you're almost like saying when the field's intuition's out, because theory somehow our intuition is out, then that's an interesting area to go and explore. And I think that's really another good indicator on that sort of issue. Like, how do I select which things I care about? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, Devin, I'd love to talk about some work that you did um, early, I think, in, please correct me, in, in 2019, the Combating Anti-Blackness in the AI Community paper. Was that was that 2019 or was that 2020? Uh,
2: that was 2020,
0: yeah. So you wrote this amazing paper, which was sort of, felt like a combination of theory and practice, but was really beautiful and I think helped to really open up this conversation around anti-blackness and the AI community in a very particular and actionable way you gave a talk recently at the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto which uh, which was sort of on this topic and I think mentioned this work which was really amazing and I really hope that everybody can go and listen to it and we'll link to it in our notes but in it you posed the question how do we marshal new resources interested in combating anti-blackness because you were talking about how we were seeing this influx of interest and this influx of wanting to help but then like, what is actually actionable or effective. And I'd love to sort of take that question a step further for our conversation. How do we marshal new resources interested in combating anti-Blackness in AI?
2: Yeah, that's a, a good question. So I guess to contextualize the paper a little more, and it wasn't until after I wrote it that I had a better sense of why exactly I wanted to write it. So I've, I've been a, you know, a person in the AI community for a while, a Black person in the AI community, and, I, spend a lot of time and initiatives on helping to create a more inclusive environment for uh, Black people in the space. It's a a form of invisible labor, which a lot of Black AI practitioners participate in. One, for kind of just our ability to maintain in this space, and two, to try to get more people in. AI is a, a community in which we're very low, right? Lower than in tech, lower than most other professional fields. That I could think of so in in order to to combat that basically like we we've been doing things for a while kind of like behind the scenes to help each other and help us maintain and navigate in these environments what I noticed in June was an influx of people like trying to figure out where they can plug in more where they can help and that's a a very loaded question. Yeah, in, in response to Black Lives Matter, right, and, you know, it, it was kind of like a, a natural evolution, like, okay, Black Lives Matter, but, like, not just in regards to policing, like, these things happen everywhere, and so there, there's, like, there's a, a ton, you know, just because anti-Blackness is so pervasive, there's so many places you can plug in and make a positive impact, and I think for each person, it's kind of, like, it's this question, right, of, like, what power do I have? And like, what do I have to give? What resources do I have to give? Or am I comfortable giving? I'll even, you know, make it that right. Like, so, you know, if, if the only thing that you have to give is money, like it's figuring out what organizations best align with your interests and giving there. If you have, you know, time to give, it's figuring out what type of efforts best align with like how you'd like to make an impact in that time and donating it there. So you can be the most impactful you know, if you have power, right? Like if this is uh, hiring decisions, promotions and things like that, right? Like it's how do you use your power to make the environment, to make the space more equitable? And so I try, you know, I try to cover a a broad uh, swath of like different possibilities, but my, my main, I guess one of my really, my main goals would be to help people identify how it pops up. When you see it and when you understand the problem, I think it's, even with my research, right? My, my research, I focus much more on identifying the problem. And I tend, I don't know, maybe lackadaisical, but like, I think there's a lot of ways to improve upon, to improve upon performance of something once you've identified the problem. There's some obvious ways, there's some which might be more creative, uh, however you want to solve it. But like making sure that you're solving the right problem is paramount. So as a community, you know, how do we combat anti-Blackness in AI? That's a challenging question for two things. Like one is like AI as a group of people, right? AI is the people who practice AI, who are involved in AI. And how do we combat anti-Blackness in there? And then the second is like AI as a technology, which is shaping the world. And so like, how do we combat anti-Blackness in the technology that we create, which shapes the world? Both are valid questions and both, both have a lot of, potential answers
1: we with interrelations between them one of the things i appreciated about your original paper was and drew my attention a lot to it is the, the historically black colleges and and to what extent are we um integrating with them and i, th- I think i looked down the list and thought my goodness i don't think well I, i've certainly not given a talk at any of those colleges and and i i thought i don't think i've even considered giving a talk at any of those colleges and and i thought that was pretty depressing I think it's hard um sometimes to understand how to help.
2: Yeah, so okay, the way that I would contextualize it and I think it's a a really important conversation that you know people who care about inclusion, you know, should be having. It's like stepping beyond the the win-win, you know, the the super positive component of doing this form of work, right? Like Everyone feels great when you mentor a high school student, right? Everyone feels good about bringing in interns and kind of things like that, right? But like when it happens that, you know, okay, you have a a coworker, a report or whatever, someone who has like problematic views, right? Or like someone who may be just, you know, slightly targeting a person of color on your team or something like that, right? Like, what do you do? right? Um, it's, it's an area which is as important, if not more important than all the work involved in getting new people into this space. But it comes with sacrifice, right? If, if you're calling out someone for bad behavior, right? That's souring that relationship. That's something that may affect you eventually down the line in the promotion cycle, right? People aren't going to love you for doing that. Like the people who you're helping will love you for it, but like the system will not love you for trying to make the environment more inclusive. And so like, what do we do when let's, let's pretend it's just probability, but it just so happens that, you know, a Black woman researcher is being treated differently than the rest of us, right? Like, you know, than the rest of her peers and stuff like that. Like, how, how do we adapt to that? Do we kind of let that happen and it's just going to be the, what the balance is? Or do we, do we apply pressure? Do we call out things? Do we try to put in safeguards? Like, how do we protect um, people in those situations? It's, it's conflict, right? How do, we, how do we engage with conflict? Some conflict is necessary. Uh, like, I'd probably go so far as to say, like, there's no such thing as safety without conflict. That's a loaded, that's a loaded statement. as <laughs> safety without conflict. Because like, there, there, there will be bad actors. We can't pretend that there aren't bad actors in the world. And the way that you ensure people's safety is to have some mechanisms for resolving that conflict. And I think way too frequently, we don't, we don't have measures designed to protect the vulnerable
1: in these situations. You've talked a bit about what actions you can take. And I think that that one about calling out when things are not being done correctly is, is a key one. But what else can we do as individuals and as a
2: community? So, I mean, I think the thing is, like, use your power and, like, effort to kind of fix it up in whatever areas are possible. Um, I tend to work better through examples. And so, like, given any example, I think the thing is, like, okay, identify where all it can go wrong, which is actually how I I love to conduct technical interviews, right? Like, okay, propose this system great you propose a system it works for the most part tell me where exactly this will go wrong right um and you have to you have to understand your proposed solution to do that and then like work on mitigating it right like so you know we could talk about academia one of the the things i touched on was like okay there's a huge racial wealth gap how does that play into who becomes phd students here well you know there's what the stipends are for phd students and that's contrasted with what's paid in industry. And that's like, it's a huge difference, but like academia has a history of like, we're not doing it for the money, right? But like that is something that benefits those who have wealth and access to other resources. Or at the minimum don't have people who are like financially tied to them, right? Like, okay, like let's say some, a loved one doesn't have health insurance and needs help with something. I can choose to make, you know, 35 a year as a phd student and not be able to contribute or i can go work as an engineer at you know a fame company and <laughs> be able to extend the life of a loved one like that's a huge trade off and it's a trade off that isn't evenly distributed right like and we could we could again look at any system that's out there and it's not going to be evenly distributed and it's going to be skewed in a certain manner with you know black people typically getting the short end of that stick And so the more layers we have that perpetuate that, like the more we get into a a system which is just like, you know, extremely adversarial towards bringing more Black people in. And And I bring that example up because that is not a factor of talent. That's not a factor of who has a CS education. That's not a factor of who's interested in AI. It's not a factor of who's like the most talented in this field and things like that. It's simply a figure of like, okay, like what resources do they have available to them at the moment? And, you know, the, the context surrounding it and how that plays in to who eventually, you know, becomes faculty and is able to enter in more students and stuff like that.
0: So I love, earlier we were talking about the idea of invisible labor, right? Or labor being devalued or that, that labor not being as high of a value as it would be in other places in the community. And that feeding into the idea of identifying the problem. And and for me, it, it feels like that, that is so critical if we can't see if we're if we are <laughs> if all of our measures are proxies and they are weighted differently in different areas in that conversation, that labor is always going to remain invisible. And in your, in your talk at the University of Toronto, you were um, talking about the importance of spending time and how time has a different value and how that impacts different communities differently. And I think we were touching on it just a little bit here when we were talking about who has who has the resources to take an unpaid internship, like who can actually do that. But I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about the importance of invisible labor and how much time that takes and how we can... Make that. Do we need to make that labor visible or do more people just need to engage in it? How can we ameliorate that burden or at least show it to those of us who have never had to do that labor?
2: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point, And I, I think the answer is both, right? Like, I think a lot more people need to be engaging in this labor, right? Um, it's It's a lot of work to get to maintain things and even more to make them better. And because, you know, people are super minorities in this spaces, that amount of work is falling on an incredibly small number of hands. And so there's that component in which like, okay, let's distribute this labor more. Like it is all of our communities, like we all should be invested in making our community more equitable. So let's all do the, do the appropriate work and pull our own weight. That's one of the things and then the other is like, let's also value it, right? Like, so while it's it's great to call out and ask everyone to do it, like let's actually incentivize it. And I think that there are a lot of ways in which we can do it. One of the ways which, you know, I had kind of been brainstorming with some of my professors at Berkeley was in talking about letters of recommendation, right? Like, can we normalize? Can we Can we make it the standard where with the same depth that you talk about research contributions and research potential of members, can you bring that same depth to talking about their contributions to the community? Right. And like what they're doing there. And like, can we value that equally in our selection processes and things like that, which are just there, like, you know, it's latching on to what our existing incentive structures are and attempting to like strongly incentivize the type of behavior, the type of work that is, needed to make our community stronger and like which will contribute to better research and everything like that um so it's a bit of both right like let's reduce the labor burden that's falling on small number of individuals and like let's also increase how much we value it right like it can be monetary value it can be value in a bunch of different places like not all value within our community is tied to compensation and like, let's tie it to these other places as well. Um, and I, I mentioned in the talk, like, you know, that it takes a lot of time and, you know, t- time is finite, right? Like there are things, there's sacrifices that happen there, right? Like part of that might be, oh, well, you know, they have 10% fewer papers because they were doing time on this type of stuff, but it may also fall into like, you know, um, relationships with loved ones, your physical, your mental health, like all of these type of things, right? And You know, the reality is really bleak. Like I've been having, you know, recent conversations around the physical health and well-being of black professors in the space, right? And like their mortality rates are much higher because of the amount of burden, stress, excess work that they're taking on um, from their peers. And it like it manifests in physical illnesses that type of stuff, like, you can't get that back, right? Um, And again, you know, they're often so few that no one else is taking on that labor. And so I really do, like, I think we urgently need to address that, because it, you know, we we won't get better until, you know, we all pitch in and start to try to move the needle. It's super hard,
1: because I think that it's, you know, relating to the sort of People want these numbers, don't they? They want these measures. And these contributions are so hard to convert to I mean, I I really like the idea of the recommendation letters focusing on it. But then I also worry that somehow the quality, I mean, particularly in the US, the whole recommendation letter system seems to be at the heart of massive inequality. You know, it's all, does your prof write great recommendation letters, you know? And, uh, you know, and are you at the right sort of... uh, university to get, you know, the, the, the big profs seem to just control the entire faculty system. So it's, but I, I so I really like your positive slant on it, that, that that we would, we want to see something a bit different in some of those letters. We want to see a bit more about the contributions. Yeah.
0: So Devin, last question. What was the last really good paper that you read that you did not write?
1: And that wasn't one of mine either. You don't have to mention about you know, <laughs> because I, you know? you know, I know it was on the tip of your tongue, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, and then the next <laughs> who are you? Who are you? Uh, uh,
2: yeah, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> a non neal paper? Oh man, it's gonna take me a while. Um it's yeah, a good question. I don't know if it's the last one that I really like, but it's one that I really like, which I like I'm itching to play with a bit more, but it's learning optimal representations with a decodable information bottleneck. It's an interesting take on like, you know, information theory and learning random labels in order to build more more robust classifiers. I, I was a very big fan of it. Uh, it's a, you know, the intuition behind it is very simple. It takes the kind of like variational informational bottleneck approaches and puts it into a a form which lends neatly to our compute environment. And so I'm, yeah, I'm just kind of curious as to like what all places this type of approach will work on.
0: Devin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much, Devin. Yeah, no
2: problem. Thank you, thank you for having me.
0: Devin Guillory of UC Berkeley. That is it for this episode of Talking Machines. Tune in next episode.